Hello and welcome to another fantabulous episode of the OST Party. This is a movie soundtrack podcast where movie fans and music fans get together and have a rockin' good time talking about all your favorite movie soundtracks. My name is Joseph Wade. I will be your host for this evening. Here with me tonight is my lovely and belligerent co-host Libby Cudmore. Libby, what is shaking? Oh, everything is groovy, baby. Just groovy. I'm glad one of us went there because I just straight up could not. <laughs> I can't with all the groovies and all of the the 60s uh, uh, vernacular this this evening. It's just like the Austin Powersness of it all. It's just, <laughs> it's just like it's out of my system. Well, um, I think it's shagadelic, baby. <laughs> That's great for you. Leaning no, into to- it. Leaning straight into it. Tonight on the show, we are bringing you one of our, our classic On the Fives where we talk about something a little different, but this time I think we bit off way more than we can chew <laughs> because we decided we're going to cover all three, no, four Austin Powers soundtracks tonight. Oh, yeah. One of them's a double disc. Absolutely. And we have chosen uh, 10 or, or 11, depending on how you want to count it, tracks that we're going to discuss to kind of talk about you know, the the evolution of the Austin Powers series from like 90s lounge revival all the way to 2002 when hip hop was really starting to take over. And it's a really weird uh, timeline that we're going to be playing with tonight. It is. It's, uh, you know, we're going back and forth where uh, we're jumping between the 90s, the 60s, the 2000s, the 70s. Why not? We're just jumping all over. Nothing matters. Time is an illusion. Yeah, exactly. Like there's there's no rhyme or reason for it anymore. It's all just kind of kind of like falling into the the melting pot and become this this culture stew that we're all living in now. <laughs> is but this before... what it's like to be a teenager? Oh yeah. This is like your dad is trying to to foist his classic rock tastes onto you. Your friends are getting really into like whatever music scenes going on at the time. But all you want to do is just sit and listen to Burt Bacharach records. It's just a weird time to be alive. <laughs> what am I talking about? Hey, before we get into Austin Powers, though, we got some business to take care of from our last episode uh, where we talked about Wayne's World because we're double dipping on Mike Myers this this uh, this month. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I just realized it's been a whole month since we've done a show, but like we've been prepping Austin Powers because this has been a lot of a lot of shit has been going yeah. on. <laughs> this has been a big lift, um, but it was a really fun one. I um, get to revisit some surprisingly solid soundtracks that oh, actually yeah. I think have gotten better since I was a teenager. I and definitely have a deeper appreciation for Burt Bacharach now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if I'm being honest, like having listened to at least a couple of these in full, I kind of wish we had just singled those out as individual episodes, but eh. it's too late to go back now. Uh, but Hey, let's talk about Wayne's world real quick. The poll that we ran for Wayne's world, we asked you um, which of these songs barring Bohemian Rhapsody was the best song from the Wayne's World soundtrack. Because obviously Bohemian Rhapsody is going to win that poll. Uh, but then with 53% of the vote, it, the winner was Tia Carrere's cover of Ballroom Blitz. That's I was I was glad for that. I was, kinda, I was hoping that uh, Why You Want to Break My Heart would come out a little more, but Ballroom yeah. Blitz is a banger and everybody loves it. Oh, yeah. And I even think like the last time we put that in a poll, like 20 or 30 episodes ago, it also won. So yeah. obviously people love song. it. 
Yeah, who doesn't? Yeah, who doesn't love it? Uh, second place, 24.5% was Alice Cooper's Feed My Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. Yeah, why not? <laughs> then uh, 18% Jimi Hendrix's Foxy Lady, of course. And rounding out the pack with only 4.5% was Tia Carrera's other song, Why You Want to Break My Heart. Which You guys, guys it, it just deserved a little bit better. Y'all broke my heart. <laughs> why you want to do that? Why you want to do that? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, check out our next poll after this episode airs. We usually put it up the weekend after this episode goes out. So we'll ask you, you know, what the best Austin Powers song is probably. Go to OST Party on Twitter and uh, cast your vote. Yes, please. And thank you. So Libby, tell me about Austin Powers. The Austin Powers series is comprised of Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, and Austin Powers in Goldmember. And they are a slapstick parody of James Bond films. They are mostly gross-out humor and double entendre. They star Mike Myers, who is our friend and enemy on this podcast, and then a bevy of beautiful ladies who were popular at that exact moment, including a young Beyonce in Goldmember. They are very silly, and you probably should never watch them again. But also, you've all probably seen them a hundred times by this point. And there's a good chance that you still say, yeah, baby. So when I was a kid, my uncle David had, we went out to visit them in California, and I don't know if it was his brother-in-law or a friend of his, but he had the full Austin Powers costume. Oh, no. With the fake teeth. He drove a very 60s car and would talk in that, like, Austin Powers vernacular. Oh, and no. I remember thinking at the time that it was very cool. I was 17. Um, now I look back and I'm like, that's moderately insane. <laughs> I hope he still has it all. But yeah, he had the velvet suit and the ruffled shirt. Oh, my gosh. I know. It was, it was, I guess it was like the first time I ever knew like an adult who cosplayed. I mean, you got to be really dedicated to want to put yourself into like Austin Powers cosplay. Yeah. But he, and like not just on Halloween. Right, but like just because you think it's funny or because you think it's entertaining or you think you can do the Austin yeah. Powers voice, baby, that was awful. I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, it's just one of those things. Like Austin Powers became like a punchline almost as soon as it went away. Yeah. Um, and they keep threatening a revival. We did have a brief revival um, at the Super Bowl this year. We did. There was a, a Dr. Evil uh, commercial. I forget what they were advertising, but uh, yeah, they definitely brought it back. And they keep threatening to do a fourth movie, and I cannot imagine any world in which that would be good. No. Although, I, if Austin Powers was revamped now, it would take place someplace in the 90s. Yeah. So like he would go back to the 90s. Going completely through the looking glass and just full-on crazy time mode. Yeah. But it's like, that's, that's how close we, like, we don't think of the nineties as being that far away, but in the nineties, we were as close to the sixties as the nineties are to right now. We are all crumbling into dust. Yes. I think is, is what we're trying to say. And I am sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. We're, we're like staring into this abyss with you, but hopefully you'll get some entertainment out of this tonight. Yeah. It's going to be like Joe Jonas as Austin Powers. 
Don't you even threaten that. Oh, my God. I think this time around, we tried not to just choose our favorite songs from these soundtracks because I, some of the songs that I liked were def- not necessarily the ones that were interesting or had anything worth talking about. So I think what we're going to try to do tonight is we're going to pick songs that kind of best typify like what the Austin Powers soundtracks were trying to do and how they kind of were signposts for the the times. Yeah, they're fair? they're very authentically curated and they're fascinating as you as you watch it change not just through the lens of Austin Powers like as he's watching society change but the the shifts in music that are happening in the present day as these movies are being made is really kind of wonderful and I didn't when I sat down to listen to them I didn't think about them in that way until I really started digging in and realizing like you said yeah they're signposts for the transition between the 90s the late 90s and the early 2000s which was such a quickly shifting landscape yeah and it was just five short years between the first film and the third and in those five years you go from like mid 90s sort of like alternative pop all the way to like the rise of mainstream hip hop mm-hmm. and Austin Powers kind of sort of threads it threads that needle in a really weird way to where it's it's basically like the Dr. Evil character kind of becomes this weird hip hop icon for better or worse. Mm. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but I don't think we're really going to touch the Dr. Evil songs that much because because they're bad because they're, they're bad jokes. Bad. They're bad jokes and they're not they're- funny. <laughs> They're extremely terrible and should never be discussed, but we will discuss them. But they're also uh, like important, an important part of this, you know, equation. We can't yes. stress that enough. But uh, where we where we have to start, where we obviously have to start, is with what, for better or worse, is now referred to as the Austin Powers theme song, is Quincy Jones's Soul Bossa Nova. Let's go to a clip. from 1960 and it was already iconic i mean just you listen to it and you instantly like you feel the swing in 60s -hmm. and i think sometimes we especially as americans forget that the 60s were not just hippies and peace and love but you also had this whole psychedelic neon hipster vibe that you see and it sort of morphs into glam later on. But when you see that opening scene uh, where this song is played, where he's walking down the streets of London and all of just the wild fashion and the colors and the patterns and the pop that, like you said, unfortunately like this, this theme, which really swings, it gets associated with that, but that is still a great scene. And the costumes in this movie are top-notch. Absolutely. Should have won an Oscar, honestly. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I, I, and I think if I didn't already know that this song was, you know, a, a song from the 60s, like it, had, it already existed, I would have thought they had, had made this up for the movie because the way they, like, 
do that musical song and dance number at the beginning is just so perfect. Like it fits so damn well mm-hmm. that if you had told me that they made it up for the movie, I would have completely believed you. Yeah. And that's also something Quincy Jones would do because he's a genius. Apparently yeah. he wrote this in 20 minutes, which is the kind of shit that only Quincy Jones can pull. <laughs> you write something this legendary in 20 minutes. God bless you, sir. It's, yeah, it's it's like the story of, you know, Dolly Parton writing Jolene and I'll always live in one day or yeah. Prince Prince writing Little Red Corvette in 1999 in one sitting. Like, how do yeah. you do that? You're just you're a fucking legend. Um, but this instantly puts you in that that 60s mindset and it's the high flutes. It's just all the 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 vibrancy the, around it. The very jazzy piano and. Like the the scene itself, there's 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 parodies of like the the Beatles' "Hard Day's Night" intro sequence, which like that alone puts you right in like it's this is that era, this is that kind of '60s that they're kind of pastiching here. Yeah, and Austin Powers himself is like a like a weird mod icon, sort of. Mm-hmm. I love that mod scene. I think it's it's amazing. I wish I could pull off that look. <laughs> I have a couple like mod dresses. Um, but I always feel weird, like, showing up to my office job. Right. In, like, mod clothes. But maybe I'll try it tomorrow. Maybe I'll just put a little of that Austin Powers magic into tomorrow's Luke. Yeah, so, why not? <laughs> I, that was the thing I noticed when I did rewatch these movies is just, again, how incredible the costumes were. And even just listening to this isolated without looking at the movie or or anything, you do. You feel instantly... 60s you feel instantly mod london yeah you just like you can't help but be taken back to that era yes um now this one did get an update for the spy who shagged me and that's the uh dim space anova mix which is the new coke of soul (laughs) bossa nova um oh yeah it's very heavy on that like real squishy electronica pulse that, that mm-hmm. you're starting that's starting to creep in uh by 1990 uh 1999 when the spy who shagged me came out and you can't improve on perfection i mean no. why would you but yeah how, how, you how dare you sir <laughs> yeah how dare you so so that that leads us in but um up next we uh joe this was your pick actually but yeah, like what this soundtrack, the first one at least, winds up doing is it takes artists from the mid '90s that are already kind of involved in sort of like '60s music revival, and it it kind of spotlights them. Uh, specifically, like we get the the Cardigans with their song "Carnival." Let's go to a clip. Yeah. And now this is one of those songs that, like, it, it, in the movie, it's sort of playing as, like, background music. But it's for, it's for one of the, the many, like, dance parties that are going on in the film. Because it's just, like, that kind of, like, vibrant, fun, sort of jazzy kind of vibe. So many fucking dance parties. Um, oh, so many. Yes. And now this one, of course, is hot off the heels of uh, the Cardigan's Love Fool, which was used in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, a film we will never talk about. 
Um, but this was actually their uh, first appearance on the UK singles chart. This one is from 1995's Life. So it actually does predate Love Fool, even though this usage uh, was post-Romeo and Juliet. Right. And it, and if you put a gun to my head, I would probably pick Carnival over Love Fool. I would too. And I think part of it is, one, this one is it's smoother and it's much richer than Love Fool. Yeah, it's the strings. I, I really it love is, the string section in this song. Yeah, it's very melty, and you get a little bit of that that Burt Bacharach uh, chamber pop feel that mm-hmm. we're going to really lean into in a few minutes. Um, and you can see where they kind of copy and pasted Love Fool. A little bit, yeah. So you work backwards into Carnival. Yeah. But like I said, like this is one of like the two main modes that this first Austin album kind of takes where, you know, in this instance, they're featuring artists involved in like the 60s pop revival and kind of showing you what's going on in in the scene now. Mm-hmm. And then later on, we'll show we'll later on. We'll get into, you know, modern artists covering songs from that that original 60s era. So we kind of get both spins on that same kind of theme. And it's kind of fascinating when I think about like 60s revival and what was happening culturally at this point. Um, You know, we'd had. Uh, two Woodstocks, one mm-hmm. of them okay, one of them disastrous. Um, you know, the Beatles had put out their anthology, and we were really getting back into the 60s, and we've talked about this a little bit uh, on some of our other episodes, but we were really fascinated by the 60s all of a sudden in yep, it- 1997. Yeah, it was like our our baby boomer parents were hitting middle age and looking back on their youth with with some degree of fondness, I think. Yes, and then turning around and selling us their clothes and their music. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I mean, Mike Myers, for for his part, you know, all these movies, Austin Powers is like a tribute to his father and his, you know, all of the the British culture that his father gave him over the years. So Mm -hmm. all of that kind of distilled and filtered down into this one weird character. Yes, and because uh, his parents were from what was it, Liverpool? I think that's right. And had moved to Canada, and so yeah, he was absorbing their sixties mod culture uh, mm. as as a a late Gen Xer, but a little Gen X nonetheless. Like you said, with Wayne's World, it's like late Gen Xers like play acting baby boomers for early millennials. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> but I I mean I remember a lot of this stuff very distinctly because you saw it a lot in girls fashion mm-hmm. with the kind of Mary Quaint, the A-line dresses, the bold tights, um the little Mary Janes. The thing uh, that I, I remember most is like all of the old navy TV ads from this era look just like this. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> vaguely, vaguely remember that. Now, um, when did you see Austin Powers? Um, it had to have been like when The Spy Who Shagged Me came out. Because okay. like I was definitely too young for it at the time. But then once you know, 1999 rolls around, I'm, I'm 13 years old and I'm trying to find more you know, quote unquote adult humor. And I think at that point, like one of my cousins said, hey, you should check out Austin Powers. <laughs> so it was it was fed Seems to like me. Seems like something illicitly. a cousin would do. 
Yeah, <laughs> this was like this was the woods porn of my era, except it was Austin Powers. Oh, I don't know if that's sad. <laughs> oh, it's sad. It's really sad. <laughs> Not as sad as my story. Nothing ever is. No. No, I I was in eighth grade when this came out, and I saw this on a date at the oh, park no. theater. I saw this with my uh, this guy I really liked. His name was Ben. He was so cute. Um, and we saw it. His older sister chaperoned us. And I don't know what was going on, but like his older sister, like slung her legs over his and they seem to be paying more attention to each other than to me. I don't know what that shit was about, but they were not happy with this film. And I think his parents were a little (laughs) conservative and... It was just, it was a very uncomfortable experience. I remember, I don't remember anything about the movie itself, but I do remember looking over and my date's sister had her legs slung over my date's legs and his head was on her shoulder. And I'm like, hi, I'm over here. That's really weird. It was really weird. So they were weird. They were I don't know that I like that. <laughs> I didn't like it. They were, I mean, he, um, he and I dated very briefly. We broke up. He moved to a different school. We uh, were friends in my early 20s. Um, I know he uh, went into, I think, the Navy after 9-11. And we lost touch. And that's probably for the best. He was. Oof. He was an odd duck, sweet kid, really nice, good looking, just weird, just real weird. First boyfriend. So um, by the time the second one rolled around, I think I had a little better humor about it. I remember laughing a lot more. And I think later I saw the first one on VHS and it was sort of funny again. I'm pretty sure I saw that uh, with my sister. We saw it Mm. again at the Park Theater. The third one would have come out when I was in college. I'm sure I saw it with my boyfriend. I remember nothing about it, except that it just, the joke was kind of worn out by then. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to Bull Member in a little bit, but like we're not going to be talking about that soundtrack very much at all. No, it's mostly bad. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, for my part, I guess I'll say, like I said, I, I... came to the first Austin Powers pretty late and it was right around when the Spy Who Shagby came out and it was just kind of un- everywhere and unavoidable. And I know I didn't see that in theaters because it was still like a little too mature for my 12 or 13 year old brain. But then, <laughs> you know, I definitely, you know, snuck around and, and watched it on video. And by the mm-hmm. time Goldmember came out, like my friends and I were all over that shit. Yeah. So no, at that I- point, the, like, at that point it was well and truly over. <laughs> Yes. Yes, it was after 9/11 we just didn't have patience for Austin Powers shenanigans. After 9/11 nothing was funny anymore. No, and especially like after Shrek, like okay, you've got your dumb franchise. Like don't go back to this well. Honestly, yeah. there'd be a they keep threatening a fourth one and we're like, "How about we don't do that?" Yeah, we could just not. Yeah. It would be fine. It's good by me. So like like Dr. Evil said in the first movie, there's nothing worse than an aging hipster. Ooh. Austin. Rude of you to say that to me, but just because I'm almost 40. <laughs> Very rude of you. It's true. It's I, I know. 
I, I wasn't I know even I'm an old... thinking about you when I said that, okay? <laughs> but I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, ah, oh, shit. I am an aging hipster. Ah, oh, man, he's right. The worst person you know just made an excellent point. <laughs> but now let's take it to Libby's area of expertise. And yes. that is we got a whole fucking lot of Burt Bacharach. Oh, yes, because if there's one thing Austin Powers loves, it's some Burt Bacharach. If there's one thing everybody loves, it's some Burt Bacharach. Also uh, true. Yes. Now, we've discussed in previous episodes that the mid to late 90s was had the, had this lounge revival scene. Uh, we talked about, it, of course, on, on The Mask, on Beavis and Butthead to America, Jingle All the Way. And this was still in uh, full swing if you will. And with that, of course, came this newfound appreciation of Burt Bacharach. One of the kind of fun behind the scenes fact is that Burt Bacharach is basically responsible for Austin Powers because the story goes that Mike Myers was driving home from hockey practice, which is the most Mike Myers thing anyone has ever said. And he heard the look of love and started wondering, well, where have all the swingers gone? And he did not mean like those parties that your parents throw um, where they put all their keys in the bowl. Uh, <laughs> you just went silent. No, I had a completely <laughs> different joke. And I was like, Ness, now is not the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just like that. I had a picture of you like flashing back. Like, oh, no. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> like that scene from Grinch 2000 where you realize, oh, the Grinch was born at a key party. Like, no. <laughs> Oh, gross. I actually never saw uh, Grinch 2000, so thank you for that. Well, happy nightmares. <laughs> Christ. But, um, so, essentially, Burt Bacharach is the primordial ooze from which Austin Powers flows. And, like uh, Soul Bossa Nova, when you hear Burt Bacharach, you instantly sort of picture a living room full of mid-century modern furniture and a hi-fi player and martinis and small glasses because it is so lush and then it goes so bombastic and then back to quiet and it just melts your panties right off <laughs> absolutely so um but our first taste of this is the look of love recorded as recorded by ming t band member jillian shagwell under the pseudonym Susanna hoffs let's go to a clip <laughs> is in your eyes a look you smile can't disguise the look of love now as we're going to find out this is going to be a Hoff's heavy episode yes in part because she's married to Jay Roach the director this is true and I mean, she's in the Bangles, and she's the best. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you've got if you've got her on the hook, why not use her? Come on, yeah, she's fantastic. She is. I'm. Um, she's got this perfectly airy, coy, Dusty Springfield esque voice to really, really carry this off. And and Burt Bacharach's songs are vocally challenging. Obviously, they've been taken on by people like Dusty Springfield, like Dionne Warwick, like real songstresses, not mm. just anyone can sing a Burt Bacharach song. Right. As we're going to find out shortly. Uh, and really, 
the only indication for me at least that this song was recorded after like 1967 is the chorus which has like a little bit of that hard 90s production polish on it otherwise she nails that really not i don't want to say like a dusty springfield impersonation but that same kind of voice that you heard a lot on these recordings in that era right yeah and now in the movie this is one where i'm trying to remember here so austin has been tasked with spying on one of dr evil's henchwomen and her name go ahead and say it is a lot of vagina say it a little louder eh? a lot of vagina her name is pussy galore (laughs) that's the joke (laughs) and all i will say here is that in the tv edits of this movie i know they changed her name to a lot of cleavage and i personally think that's a better joke that's actually funnier because oh my god yes she does (laughs) She certainly has a lot of that. Yes. Huh. I don't know how one would have a lot of the other. I mean, they can only be like so big, I guess. I mean, no, I'm not going to go there. Oh, I... <laughs> but yeah, no, this song fits the scene perfectly. It's it's very sultry and very seductive. And honestly, I, I'm really into this this version. Yeah. Um, and it's a very honest cover. I think at a time where we were starting to see a lot of ironic covers. Mm-hmm. And we see that, you know, we're coming up on like me, myself and Irene. We're in the era of Pennywise and me first in the Gimme Gimme's where a lot of bands are taking their parents' music and doing dumb covers of it. We're also in the era of ska covers, but the less said about that, the better. Yeah. And... I think it's important that this was an honest and authentic cover of this song. And also because I think we're, we're about to get a second um, like Burt Bacharach song with, ki- with a slightly ironic cover yes. uh, coming up soon here on the list. Yes. Um, and that is what the world needs now with the posies. And he actually does sing on this track. So let's go to a clip of that. The world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love. Now, having everything that you've just said, I honestly really, really like this cover. I like it a lot. Ah, this one doesn't do it for me. I feel like it would be really good on Beavis and Butthead Do America. I could see that, yeah. Yeah. I think I think what I like about it is like in the scene in in the movie, you know, Austin and his um partner Vanessa are on out on the town in Las Vegas and like this really upbeat, really, really rocky, rocky sort of jazzy cover of this Burke Recorrect song is playing while they're they're like touring Las Vegas and it's very it's very in your face and very like check out all the sights and sounds of Las Vegas and like it's kind of like overload almost but I think it works really well for that scene yes and and that makes sense but then when you're listening to it isolated on the album it it's very jarring and especially on an album that really in so many ways strives for that authenticity this one just doesn't doesn't feel 
right. And I do like that they got actually Burt Bacharach to sing on it. That mm-hmm. feels like a blessing to me. This one, it's just not my favorite. And it's like, it's as we've talked about, sometimes something will work in a scene, but then not work on the soundtrack. And I feel like this is one of those that just doesn't quite land for me on the soundtrack. Yeah, and that's fair. But also, the this version is, is very hard to track down. Like, there's only one cut of it on YouTube. And it's this weird, like, psychedelic kind of, like, slideshow version <laughs> of the song. Weird. So, however. Yeah. However. Yes. Um, all three of these were repressed on vinyl for, um, I think it was uh, in 2020, for Record Store Day. Oh, nice. So I got my hands on uh, the first one and the second. I declined to buy Goldmember. And actually, finding The Spy Who Shagged Me was really difficult. Um, I've never seen it in a store. I actually ended up having to special order mine. Um, I was able to find it. And I've seen a couple other places that have had the original. They're really both work- worth picking up. Uh, because the, and the, the vinyl sounds beautiful. They're really gorgeous. Okay. And I think maybe the reason you, it was so hard to find The Spy Who Shagged maybe is because of the three films, that one does seem to be like inexplicably the most popular. So that there might just be a weird demand for that one in particular. Yeah, I think that was it. Like there was a surprising a surprising demand and we'll we'll get to more of that. Um it, in fact, right now because our third Burt Bacharach song, uh we have talked about uh on a very early episode we talked about uh his duet with Elvis Costello from this Bioshag Me, I'll Never mm-hmm. Fall in Love Again. Uh, let's play a, a short clip. Yeah, why not? What do you get when you fall in love? You only get lies and pain and sorrow. So for a beast until tomorrow, I never fall Now, we've talked about how much I love this song and how I want to make out with it, but <laughs> I've learned a little bit more about the context of it. Okay. And because just a year earlier, so Spy Who Shagged Me came out in 1999. In 1998, Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach recorded Painted From Memory, um, which was, it was an album of songs that they wrote together. And it is absolutely like mind-meltingly beautiful. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. And, and anyone who's ever listened to Elvis Costello can tell that Burt Bacharach was a huge influence on him. Like even as kind of a young, angry British boy, he had all these very complex arrangements that are clearly Bacharach inspired. Mm -hmm. Um, But Painted From Memory was their first big collaboration. Uh, Obviously we have this scene in The Spy Who Shagged Me where they, they actually do play the song in the scene. Um, and, and Austin and Felicity Shagwell played by Heather Graham, um, dance and it's silly and wonderful. Um, but Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach continued to collaborate after this. Um, they, they still collaborate even in, in present day. Burt Bacharach is something like 93 years old. Um, but the song Photographs Can Lie from 2018 Look Now and Everyone's Playing House from 2019's Purse were both collaborations. Wow. I had no yes. idea. Yeah. So they actually, this is this is a very fruitful time for them. And it's really wonderful, I think. 
that they continue to collaborate. Everyone's playing house is one of my favorite Elvis Costello songs. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah and I actually, them. yeah, I actually uh, bought this soundtrack really for that song. Um, and oh, of course. I actually rewatched the movie a little while ago, like just for that scene. It's definitely like one of the highlights for sure. Yeah, and for a while it wasn't on any uh it wasn't on any streaming services. It wasn't available on Spotify. Videos would get pulled from YouTube, so it was a really hard song to find. But now right, I have it on vinyl. Yeah. And no one can take it away from me. Yeah, and I have the I have the DVDs still. No one can take those away from me. Yeah, physical media, baby. But like good like good for him for, you know, putting putting the guy in there like that's just really cool yeah it's a delightful scene it's it it really is it's a beautiful little scene in an otherwise Mm. ridiculous and silly movie and really like so few of the actual musicians on any of these albums actually appear in the film so it's it's kind of kind of makes it feel more special yeah beyonce of course in the third one uh by by the third one all bets were off (laughs) yeah and ming t Uh, of course and we have one more Baccarat cover because obviously we couldn't go into Goldmember without uh, this next song, which is uh, Alfie. What's it all about, Austin? Yeah. Again, covered by Jillian Shagwell. Of course. Let's go to a clip. What's it all about, Austin? Is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about? When you sort it out, Austin, are we meant to take more than we give? Now, of course, this is a cover of the Burback Rack song from the film Alfie, starring Michael Caine, because Michael Caine actually appears in Austin Powers 3 as Austin's father. I don't get it. (laughs) Okay, let me start start from the beginning. No. (laughs) (laughs) But like... Is that a joke? It's a it's a joke. It's a re- it's like a reference. It's like three references deep. What? <laughs> it's called culture, Libby. <laughs> like honestly, it's just the original song is great. Alfie is pretty great little movie. If you've never seen it, Michael Caine is wonderful. Like everything about this, I just kind of love. And then on top of that, you get this. Like I don't know even why they did it, except that like, it, well, of course you have to cover Alfie for Austin Powers. But yeah, you know, like, like, why is it here? But I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a lovely cover of a lovely song. Uh, but by this point, the joke is sort of worn thin. Mm-hmm. And I, well, like I said, while I appreciate it, I think the look of love is the better of these. Of these. Uh, uh, sorry, let me take that again. Of yeah. these Jillian Shagwell covers. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the look of love is stronger. I feel like this one's just kind of, I don't want to say phoned in because it is, it's a really solid cover and, and Susanna Hoffs really puts everything into it. But this one, I think, because I think, you know what it is? What's it's up? that she swaps it for Aust- Austin for Alfie and it feels corny. It's very corny. And the only reason I in- I wanted to include it was because we're, we're bringing in so many different like musical and and like filmic references like i had to say like also oh, yeah. we're doing this now <laughs> well and also i love that they continue that burt Bacharach thread N- and yeah, not just the Bacharach thread but also like the, the susanna hoff's thread like she's in mm-hmm. all three of these films in some capacity yes 
Uh, so I do, I do like that. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, uh, Joss Stone covered it for the for the 2004 remake with Jude Law. Oh, that's right. Yes. So if they ever do get, if we ever do get the fourth Austin Powers film, we're going to get a young Nigel Powers played by Jude Law, right? Mm-hmm. Or is he? Is he? Or is he old enough now to just play Austin's father? Like, period. Like, it's... to play Joe Jonas, Austin's father. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. I hate all of this. No, I'm. Um... It's funny. I've, I actually haven't seen Alfie. I think I've seen like half of it. But um, my boss used to say that to me. He used to say, what's it all about, Alfie? <laughs> so I was like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> so we've kind of jumped around a little bit between the three films here. Obviously, the first film is kind of front loaded with a lot of the really interesting stuff. And there's even a couple that we kind of skip past to get to get here. But I want to jump back to the original Austin Powers real quick so that we can talk about the lightning seeds for a moment. Yes. So the other thing that these films are doing, along with, you know, taking modern acts that are kind of doing music from the 60s, they're also asking modern acts to cover songs from the 60s. And here in the original Austin Powers soundtrack, we get the lightning seeds covering uh, You Showed Me by either the turtles or the birds, however you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. Roger McGuinn wrote it. Yes, yes, but made famous by the Turtles. Specifically, or like it's that Peppa. arrangement. I say what? Or Salt and Pepper. They covered it too. They did, didn't they? I forgot about that. <laughs> but it's, it's. I think the Turtles arrangement that they're really covering mm-hmm. here. So let's go to a yeah. clip about. even know where to start with this because everything that we have already said kind of applies to this one like it's got that 90s edge but it's got you know the the 60s kind of vibe the strings are back it's that brit pop sound that i kind of like very sleepy but it's kind of on purpose it's just a really weird catchy tune and i appreciate it and i've actually i've loved the lightning seeds for a long time um it was a nice find because i think that the lightning seeds are very underrated Mm -hmm. and so does to have them on this soundtrack was, you know, it was delightful. It's like, okay, more people can listen to them. Um, this, I think, is one of the sleepier songs on the album. Oh, definitely. Um, it's, um, it's got, like, this the whole kind of trip-hop feel as we start heading into Electronica mm-hmm. taking over, which we'll start to see really in the third movie. Um, it's a little anemic. But that's deliberate. And the video is terrifying. Yeah, the video is like every every living human's waking nightmare. Yeah, it's just like a whole, like, let's watch the domestic violence channel. Um, <laughs> Guess what? You're going to get old someday. <sighs> yeah, it's really bad. But um, <laughs> one of the things that I find, you know, particularly fascinating about, particularly the first soundtrack, because if we look at the first Austin Powers soundtrack, there's a lot of stuff that marks it. That It could be 1992 or 1999 because we think about what a wide swath 
of different types of music were circling around our ra- our airwaves at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this one, you can't quite pinpoint. To find out that it was as late as 1997 actually surprised me, even though I remember going to see it in eighth grade. <laughs> because if you listen to this, you could not pinpoint 1997. Maybe the only thing that really marks it as that side of the 90s is the cardigans. Yeah, definitely. So because a lot of these other bands, luxury, uh, broadcast, they're, they're not ones that you know. So they could exist in that early 90s college airwave scene. Yeah, and not to mention like Edwin Collins, who we like encountered on uh, the the Empire, Empire, Empire Records. Records soundtrack. Like he gets another little kind of a loungy tune in here as well. So, yep, he actually yep. opens the album with uh, the Magic Piper of Love. Yep, which that's actually a pretty good video too. We'll put that. It in really the show is. Notes. Um, but I mean, we even go back so far as to 1990 uh, with a song we'll talk about a little later. So, the second soundtrack feels a little more late 90s and of course by the third in 2002 it is like firmly 2002 it could not get more 2002 than that and you know one thing that i i regret skipping when we started this episode i have a ton of billboarding school notes that we could have gone into I was wondering if you were going to do billboarding school and then why don't we. We'll, well no let me just start now because this one this one in particular is very relevant to what you were just saying. Okay. For the first for the first Austin Powers album. So it, it debuted on the charts you know in May of 1997. The number one album the week that it charted was the Spice Girls debut album. Okay so we were very much into uh, sort of British British pop. Yeah. And like looking at looking at it now, like the fact that the, they're only barely involved with Austin Powers at all is kind of shocking to me because you yes. think that would have been a slam dunk. Absolutely. Again, especially with their whole look, with exactly. the platforms, with their mod revival, but make it sexy look. So like it's, it's weird to think that the Spice Girls and Austin Powers were happening at the same time and they barely cross pollinated at all. <laughs> What you gonna Certainly do? Certainly not musically. Not musically, no. Well, this is we could talk about this one briefly. Uh, one of the Spice Girls shows up in The Spy Who Shagged Me. Right, Libby? Yeah, because Melanie B, a.k.a. Scary Spice, shows up to do a cover of Cameo's Word Up. Let's go to a clip. Yeah. not right yeah i actually really like this cover i kind of dug it yeah i think it's really exciting i think it's really sassy i think it's also probably belongs on the third album it probably would have been more at home for sure yes because it is a disco tune um so i think it doesn't quite fit with the rest of the spy who shagged me but i'm not going to complain because i love it and i think it's a really really sexy fun vibrant cover of a song that is already sexy and fun and vibrant it's already Again, i yeah, think she the, sticks with that authenticity yeah like the song is already extremely funky and then she just brings it to it a whole different level 
Mm-hmm. So it it does, as we talked about uh, with the look of love, it does have that like super nineties production value on it. Yeah, but I don't true. think that's a bad thing, and especially because you know disco had a lot of polish and a lot of production behind it. Oh yeah. So I think this is just again modernizing, and modernizing isn't always bad. And so I think I think this cover really really does a lot i'm excited about it i think it's really fun it's one of the yeah. little gems on uh spy who shagged me yeah and this is another soundtrack where they really tried to push hard like the the modern artists covering 60s tunes mm-hmm. uh, sometimes to disastrous effect and then other times just well you get word up uh, yeah. and that's fine <laughs> yes and we might as well here talk about the disastrous one Oh my god. Okay. I almost didn't even want to, but we're gonna have to, aren't we? Like it's the we're elephant in the to. room. It's it's Lenny Kravitz's American Woman, right? Oh, it's so bad. It's the worst. It's pretty terrible. Like uh, I mean, he fa- he famously said that like he he couldn't do the guitar solo because he couldn't get the like the fuzz sound quite right, so he just threw it out the window. <laughs> like he just gave it, up on the song entirely. <laughs> yeah. And it's weird because I have I wouldn't say a soft spot this one this is the one i i think because this was the one that was playing a lot on mtv mm-hmm. uh, and you heard this one a lot more so this is when i think of the song american woman this is the version i go back to so hearing the original guess who version always throws me a little bit yeah the original guess who version is it's like one of those songs that is just like deeply entrenched in the 60s and there's really no getting it out but lenny kravitz mm-hmm. certainly tried didn't he yeah he tried his Dong dust. <laughs> uh, he sure did. <laughs> God. So, no disrespect to Lenny Kravitz, but maybe maybe he should have sat this one out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like one of the big hits of the album, so it like big made it big enough of a hit that they gave it a second volume. So I can't say it didn't work. Yeah, we I just didn't like it. Bypassed Billboarding School. Where did this one land on the charts? Oh, this one. Oh, this one hit number. F- uh, let's see here. This one hit number five on the charts. This is a big hit. Okay, yeah. I, I remember mean, it, it playing it, basically nonstop. It, yeah, really. I mean, it lasted like 21 weeks on the charts. I mean, the top soundtrack the week that it debuted was the Backstreet Boys Millennium. Oof. It's like, yeah. But also the top soundtrack was uh, the Phantom Menace soundtrack. Woof, which because I had. This, it's very cause, bad. Yeah, because this is that summer. And also, of course, <sighs> obviously Austin Powers has to make a bunch of Star Wars jokes because it's the, the summer of Star Wars. <sighs> right yes <sighs> but yeah it. the spy who shagged me was such a hit that they gave it a second soundtrack and that album only only charted for two weeks and it was the two weeks that santana's supernatural was number one. Ooh, that was a hot one. Oh yeah <laughs> like seven inches from the midday sun <laughs> that's the reference but also, like, with Lenny Kravitz and Mel B, like, we also get, you know, modern covers of 60s tunes from R.E.M. and mm-hmm. from uh, a band called Big Blue Missile and, and Scott Weiland from Stone Temple Pilots. <laughs> so, like, they're they're really going all in on these covers. And for the most part, they're just, aside from Word Up, they're kind of uninspired. <laughs> like, like, they really R.E.M., are. R.E.M. doing Dragging the Line, like, yeah, they kind of did it, but it's so tired. They just sound so tired. Yeah, and by this point, R.E.M. was kind of on, on the outs. Uh, we'd see them again with Man on the Moon, but they were, they were a little tired. They hadn't had, got their second win yet. 
Yeah, I mean, they had just lost Bill Berry, their drummer, so they were their foot. They had like, kind of had one foot out the door already. Mm-hmm. So you can't really fault them for that, though. No, that's that's not on them. Um, and I love I love their work on um, I love the Great Beyond. That's one of my oh, favorite REM. Yeah, that's a great song. Yeah. Just as as we're talking about REM and uh, Man on the Moon, uh, Jim Carrey was originally supposed to play Doctor Evil. Oh wow! But uh, he was busy doing i believe liar liar that sounds and, right yeah and i'm trying to think which is worse i mean we do hate jim carrey on this podcast which isn't his fault um but ooh, i mean that's rough because um dr evil is a pretty annoying character and mike myers is pretty annoying <laughs> as him yeah but then let me hit you with this you know one of the reasons that Mike Myers and Dana Carvey kind of had a falling out was because Dr. Evil is basically Mike Myers doing Dana Carvey's impression of Lorne Michaels. Yes, that and is I, true. And I, I have to wonder, did did that not ever come up? Like, hey, Dana, do you want to play Dr. Evil in my movie? No, because I, he hated Dana Carvey. Right. So, <laughs> so, And then Dana Carvey hated him more because he, he basically did this. Yeah. So you just think, like, what could have been, you know? But then Mike Myers winds up playing both of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And by the second movie, he's playing Fat Bastard, which is a joke that has not aged well. Oh, it, it aged like milk. No. Ooh. No way. And it, it's weird to think that Shrek is basically child-friendly Fat Bastard. <laughs> I can hear it. I never thought am of I, that, but I can hear it. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, you're not wrong at all. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so true. Yeah, think about that. Chew on that a little bit, won't you? Thank you. Trick eats because he's unhappy, and Trick is unhappy because he eats. Oh, that's so sad. I don't care. <laughs> but then also Mike Myers winds up playing Goldmember in the film Goldmember, and boy, at that point, like they're just scraping the bottom of the barrel, aren't they? Yeah. Like, he's got uh, nothing left. Yikes. <laughs> so do we have a song to talk about with this one or not? I don't know. We, uh, we sort of do. Because the joke in the song Hey Goldmember is sung by uh, Beyonce, uh, which does sample Casey and the Sunshine Band's Shake, 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 and is just silly. But uh, she talks about how uh, he had the Midas touch, but he touched it too much. So now he has a gold member. But mm-hmm. we're not going to talk about that ode to masturbation. We're going to talk about the Divinals 1990 hit, I Touch Myself. Let's go to play. to applaud you on that segue that was smooth yeah you like that <laughs> i did i love this song i love this song so much i've always loved this song i loved it when i heard it on the radio i loved it when i heard it in this movie i actually bought a soundtrack collection um not the austin power soundtrack but it was like songs from different movies because it had this and i didn't want to buy an album where this was the predominant single okay because i still lived at home Right, right. And I wasn't sure I wanted to buy a song called I Touch Myself and play it at my house. 
So it's like, oh, it was on there with like a bunch of other songs. I bought this Playboy for the articles, certainly. Exactly. Yes. It was the. It's funny because this song is one of those that I've somehow ended up with three copies of because I bought the 45 <laughs> and then somebody bought me the, the Divinals album and then I bought the Austin Powers soundtrack. So it's like this and Hungry Like the Wolf. I somehow have like multiple copies of. But... So now I'm, I'm going to find another film that features this just so you have to buy that album. Yes, that you would do that. Um, now this is used ironically in Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery because he runs into some fanbots, mm-hmm. which are uh, babes in nightgowns with machine guns in their boobs. Right. And he thinks they're just like hot babes and does a strip tease for them to this song. And of course, that's the joke because he's hairy and gross and nobody wants to think about Austin Powers touching himself and the fanbots explode. He's so sexy, their heads explode. Yes. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, um... sure. But also, like, th- it's it's one of the rare, like, just kind of perfect needle drops in this in, in these movies. It like, really is because like it's it's not associated with like the music scene at the time or like a modern artist covering anything. It's just like you know what? Let's just play. I touched myself. Yes, and it's great. And it is this song. This song makes everybody happy. Fun fact: the video was directed by Michael Bay. Of course, it is. It is. It is the most perfect needle drop. And you, once you hear it, you see it coming from a million miles away. Like, once it hits, you're like, of course. Of course. That's how good a needle drop it is. Yeah. But it did warrant being included on the soundtrack. And that's what I mean when I say that the soundtrack spans so many years that you don't necessarily pinpoint it in 1997. Because this song is seven years old by that point. It hasn't been right. played on MTV in forever. Like, it had stopped being... I mean, when it came out, it, I remember it was kind of sort of a joke. Like, it was it was sincere, of course. But, like, everyone was like, oh, teehee, I touched myself. But then at, at this point, like, the joke was over. And it's just like, oh, right, that song. Yeah. <laughs> everyone remembered that song. And it's such a good song. It's great. Yeah, the Divinals are wonderful. And, of course, this is their second appearance now on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, they covered Love is the Drug on the Super Mario Brothers soundtrack. That's right. Yes. So we have a lot of love for the divinals here. Of course. Absolutely. Wow. So this, is, this, this episode really is very heavy on the first soundtrack, I think, because it's the most interesting one. It is. And it, like there's some of the best songs are on the second, but the first one is really fascinating. It's just very well composed. Like just like with like the, the Flintstones album, I think it's more interesting to study than it is to listen to. Yes. Like as a piece of ephemera. And yeah. where we were culturally at the time, what we were listening to. Mm-hmm. So I'll let you take this next one. Well, we've got the, the the perfect needle drop out of the way. Now let's go to like a perfect, a perfectly crafted parody. Mm-hmm. And it's the song that opens The Spy Who Shagged Me. It's the song Evil by They Might Be Giants. <laughs> Evil is his one and only name. So you think, but you're so very wrong It's evil, but being wrong is right So then you're good again Now, I can't believe at, at this point in the episode It took us this long to get to, like, a perfectly crafted, like, James Bond song parody Yes, 
And this nails it. And it very specifically nails, like, Shirley Bassey. Yeah. It's a perfect tone. It's just, like, it sounds exactly like what, like, a 60s Austin Powers theme would have been. Yes. And if you're not listening too close to the lyrics, you could, like, if you heard this sort of in the distance, you could mistake this. But, like, oh, yeah, I guess that might be Goldfinger. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it could be. You never know. Yeah, I mean it's it's that spot on, mm-hmm. and I I like that they get these James Bond details in there because we were again in a, a little bit of a, the Bond revival. Uh, I don't think this is the best Bond joke in the album, though. Really? What? So what would you say is the best? I would say the propeller heads crash. Actually, really, really gets a very layered joke in there. Um, now, because this is a remix of Brass Incorporates at the sign of the swinging symbol, which is one, it's a very British joke because this was the theme of Radio One's official chart show. Oh, okay. But as we said before, the propeller heads were having a little bit of a moment. And by 1999, they were known for doing James Bond themes, including Backseat Driver in Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, but also on their own album, they did like a 12-minute remix of the the theme from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which itself yes. is like an excellent, like an amazing, like a magnum opus of like techno. It's awesome. Yes, and as we talked about on uh, There's Something About Mary, we had History Repeating featuring Shirley Bassey. Of course, it all comes so- full circle. Yes, so I feel like that's that's a very, very weird, a very modern James Bond joke slipped into the Austin Powers, the second Austin Powers movie. Yeah, it's it's very it's very savvy on on the the, the producers' parts. I think yes. like people putting this soundtrack together, like they knew all these people that are kind of like tangentially related to James Bond in some way, shape, or form. Let's bring them in. And especially the contemporary Bond that was running Mm -hmm. sort of concurrently with this. And one of the reasons, uh, as Daniel Craig has said, that they went back to such a serious James Bond is he basically said, Austin Powers fucked us. (laughs) You couldn't do a fun James Bond because Mike Myers had already done it. Which is really funny. When you consider that, like, the ending of Goldmember is all, like, the the twist in Goldmember is also, like, the twist in Spectre, which came out, like, ten years after Goldmember. Austin Powers beat them to their own joke, or to their own, like, plot twist. Wait, what? Yes. I didn't see Spectre. Okay. Tell me everything. I'm not going to see it. So the end of uh, Goldmember, it's revealed that Dr. Evil and Austin are brothers, right? Yes, yes. The end of Spectre, it's revealed that Blofeld and James Bond are actually brothers. Oh, Jesus, that's funny. (laughs) And I don't know if they did it on purpose or if they had any clue. Well, nobody saw Goldmember. Exactly. Nobody saw Goldmember, so who knows? That's that's hysterical. But it's like, so for all all of Daniel Craig's complaining that, like, Austin Powers ruined James Bond, uh, he was more right than he knew. (laughs) Daniel Craig, you son of a bitch. Oh, man. Just make another 10 Knives Out movies. We don't even care. Yeah, why not? So. Get that Netflix money. <laughs> oh, so we are we are barreling down toward the end of this soundtrack, but not before hitting a couple of really heavy hitters. So, um, Libby, why don't you take it away? So the song that I think is most is best known, other than Lenny Kravitz's uh, cover of American Woman, is Madonna's Beautiful Stranger, which was a huge hit 
from this album and got the music video mm-hmm. uh, in which she's sent to seduce Austin Powers. Uh, let's, let's go to the liking this song for a long time because by this point we've hit ray of light madonna uh which came out a year earlier and i don't love ray of light uh i think it's just kind of a corny album but this i feel like is the last good madonna song Mm. i can Um, see that yeah it's wonderfully poppy and sexy and light but without being daffy Mm-hmm. And it, you really, you can't escape that hook. And I think what did this song for me, like, again, I was like, I'm, I'm going to resist this. But I remember being in my professor's car and he had this on a tape that a friend had made him. And every time I hear it, I think of I think we might have been going to see Sin City that day. And, no, we were going to the paperbacks exchange. That was it. So it always reminds me of like this beautiful sunny day in Binghamton with this professor. Maybe I had a crush on and maybe, maybe still do. And listening to Madonna's Beautiful Stranger. I'm like, OK, this is my favorite song now. Everybody be cool. <laughs> it was followed up by Depeche Mode's It's No Good. Which is a real weird, that's a whole, like, wide swath to mm-hmm. go across. Because that is a very gloomy song. Yeah. But those two are linked forever in my mind because of this mixtape. So, Madonna, <laughs> hats off to you. Last good song you ever wrote. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of agree. Like... After like yeah, because after this it was it was her music album and I was really not a fan of that at all. Yeah, and then I just stopped paying attention. What's really funny is so she does this great banger song for a James Bond parody, and three years later is doing the theme for an actual James Bond, uh, "Die Another Day." Oh, that's right. So there and- again, Austin Powers beat James Bond with a punch. Yes, and that song was ranked as one of our least favorite James Bond themes in our James Bond uh, on the fives. I still contend that is true. It's a terrible song. It is a terrible, terrible, terrible song. And how does Beautiful Stranger outrank it? This song for this dumb movie is better than the real song for the actual movie. It's, it's bright. It's fun. For one thing, it sounds like a real song that people would want to listen to. Yeah. You know, how can you uh, not feel good when you hear Beautiful Stranger? I know it's great. And like the music video, too, is is very silly. And I, I honestly kind of prefer it to the movie because yeah. it's, it's it's Madonna seducing Austin Powers to the point where she's like there's a scene where she's like rubbing her butt in his face while he's trying to drive a car. And it's yeah, I don't know why. Like, I, I don't know why I don't you like you do. But I don't know why I think that's funny because like he's <laughs> trying so hard to just drive and he's like grossed out by it. But she's yeah. rubbing her butt in his face. Yeah, because it's just like at that point, you know, she's I think probably like Austin, you slightly younger than my mother. Um, 
Yeah. No, Madonna is the same age as my mother. No, yeah, th- this was Madonna and she's in her, like, like I'm, f- I'm 40 and still sexy, damn it, phase. Yeah, but no. Nobody nobody I... likes to be the 40-year-old woman at the club. Like, I say that as a 40-year-old woman. So, yeah, it's really funny, like, yeah, watching her, like, grind up on him. There's nothing more pathetic than an aging hipster. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, speaking of Dr. Evil, I do uh-huh. want to go back and talk about a little bit of a trend that we see rising out of these films um as we talk about the emergence of uh hip-hop in popular culture and we've seen this rise obviously it's not new by 1997 um but the film kind of treats it as it as though it is because in the spy who shagged me we have dr evil mike myers covering um the Will Smith version of Bill Withers and Grover Washington Jr.'s Just the Two of Us. And he sings it about his clone, Mini-Me, played by the late Vern Troyer. Now, the Will Smith version of this song um, was about his son, non-canon Karate Kid actor Jaden Smith. Right, yes. So, uh, let's go to a clip. Oh man. Yeah. From the moment I heard Frau say I had a clone, I knew that I'd be safe because I'd never be alone. An evil doctor shouldn't speak aloud about his feelings. My hurt and my pain don't make me too appealing. I hope Scott would look up to me, run the business of the family, head an evil empire just like his dear old... It is just as bad as you remember, buried in the pizza hut recesses of your brain. Oh, it's in there. And they decided to double down on this because... White men rapping is funny. It's, you know, they're bad at it and they're from Canada. Um, by covering uh, Mr. Beyonce's, uh, that's Jay-Z, uh, is Hard Knock Life Ghetto Anthem in Goldmember. And that is somehow worse. It's somehow worse, but also I found myself laughing at it because it's even more, like, inscrutable and out of nowhere. Like, yeah. why... Like, it wasn't funny the first time. Why are you doing it again? I don't know, but here it is. Yeah, it's very, very, very bad. And especially because throughout Goldmember, again, we're seeing like that real rise in uh, in hip hop, in electronica, in mm. R&B and dance music. Um, and we see this, um, we see Beyonce, uh, of course, who stars in the film. Uh, doing work it out. Let's go to a clip of this really briefly. Now, there was this horrible trend in the early aughts of that fake 1940s yell singing. And I feel oh, like yeah. it kind of started here because a couple years later, Christina Aguilera did her back to basics album, which just because you put on red lipstick and yell does not make you from the forties. Um, <laughs> it's like supposed to harken back to like jazzy times, but this is disco Beyonce. Why are you doing this to us? It's so terrible. It's so terrible. It's it's rough, and I, I feel bad saying that because I know 
the Bayhive is out there. And I know. Listening. And I feel bad because Britney Spears' uh, Boys is also on this soundtrack. And, it's and that even is also, worse. it's really terrible. It's absolutely dire. And I feel bad for everything Britney has been through. But Janet Jackson recorded this song. Why'd she give it to a dummy like Britney Spears? I'm sorry. I don't get it. I don't get Britney. I mean, at least they had the good sense to like turn her into a fembot and blow her up in the beginning of the movie. That still Which doesn't now, excuse, like, doesn't in excuse retrospect, putting it on the soundtrack. Yeah, in retrospect, it feels mean. I'm just like, oh, why a little so- bit. Why are we so mean to Britney that we want to kill her all the time? But um, that's just one of those things like I will I will never understand. I think by this point, I was a little like get off my lawn uh, with the youths. <laughs> but I also feel like and we're heading into our number one. So I feel like I want to talk about some of the really dire things here because sure. we haven't talked. We haven't talked about our last nemesis. Who makes an appearance in gold member. Oh, I almost forgot about this. Yeah. Because it is 2002 baby. And you know what that means? We are in the post Shrek landscape and there's only one man who is risen. It's Steve smash Mouth's world. And I'm just living in it. Yes. Here's ain't no mystery from gold member. And folks, I'm going to go ahead and say it straight up. The reason I didn't put this on my list or have any notes for it is because I listened to it. And this is a big, big old fat nothing of a song. This is like if a migraine could sing talk. (laughs) This is exactly like what a migraine feels like. Oh, Um, yeah. I can't believe I'm actually going to say this, but this could actually be pretty funky. If Steve Smash Mouth wasn't mouth farting all over it, like yeah, it's got rest... a p- pretty groovy the... baseline there. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, it's it's like, it's like white guy hip hop, sure. It's but... like, but it's got like a little, it's got a little funk kick to it. And I think in like a better producer's hands, like let let Mark Ronson run wild with this. Get Bruno Mars on it. I don't know. You might actually be able to make something out of this, but then you insist on putting Steve Smashmouth and his fucking bowling shirts in there. Or, I mean, hell, you had Pharrell Williams do the Beyonce song. Couldn't you have him do this one, too? He did the Britney Spears song, too. Yeah. I know. Get What's Pharrell doing? Uh, this is it's inexcusable. I'm like, just because you used All Star and shrek does not mean that you owe steve Smashmouth your life did he pull you out of a burning car why is this on here i mean unless that's exactly the reason i don't know well i feel like we would have never stopped hearing about that if that was the reason he would have been like oh, i can pull my mars off a burning car oh, fuck mean, your parents yeah. no you're right because if that was actually the reason we would have gotten the smash mouth like biopic starring mike myers and steve right <laughs> That would have definitely happened by now. God, no. It would have gotten four sequels, and it would have a, a, a remake series on Netflix by now. Yes, and somebody would have had to play Steve Smashmouth's dad and be like, I'm not disappointed in you, son. Starring Guy Fieri as Steve Smashmouth's dad. 
really the only reason we're talking about Smash Mouth at all right now is because like they're back in the news again for some reason. So for some reason they have a new lead singer. Yeah. There's a I new can't... Steve Smash Mouth in town. Steve's 2.0. <laughs> and they're, they they got a good start by covering of all fucking things in the world, Rick Astley's never going to give you up. Like, all right, guys, you do you. Yeah, you guys help. are assholes. We get it. You're just assholes. Leave Rick like, Astley alone. Remember remember what we were talking about earlier with, like, the, the shitty ska covers of, like, classic songs? Like, yeah, we're back to that again. We know. The late 90s are coming for us all. Nope. Well, let's wind this down and come back around to where we started. Yes, because... We haven't talked really about the Austin Powers origin story yet, and we thought we'd save that for last. Yes. Take it Be- away, Joe. Because where Austin Powers came from is, I guess, after the Wayne's World movies happened, Mike Myers decided to start a band with Matthew Sweet and Susanna Hoff called Ming T, where mm-hmm. they all assumed, like, 60s-era, like, mod characters and play, like, swinging 60s tunes together. And Mike's character happened to be called happened to be called Austin Powers, and at some point, one of the band members said, "Hey, Mike, you should write a movie about Austin's origin story." <laughs> Thus, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Yes, between Burt Bacharach and Susanna Hoffs, that is how we got this. This is how we got here, people. And so, of course, Ming T features very heavily in. Well, not heavily in all these films, but they do make appearances. Yes. So on the first soundtrack, we get the song BBC. Yes, which was a song that they had written um, prior to Austin Powers. So yeah, let's play a clip real quick. Mrs. Will ya Make me tea Make love to me Put on the telly To the BBC But like watching the clip in the movie and the and the video, like you can definitely hear and see that like yeah, this kind of feels different from everything else about Austin Powers. Like it somehow is more pure, and mm-hmm. I, I I buy that this is where Austin Powers came from. Yeah, that it really tracks. Um, it's very 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 catchy, and I have loved Matthew Sweet since that first mix CD with um. With the lightning seeds, uh, the CD opened with Winona from his oh. album Girlfriend. But um, so I've loved him for years, and but I did not know that until doing research for these albums mm-hmm. that Ming that he was in Ming T. I knew he had done stuff with Susanna Hoffs, but I didn't realize that Ming T was one of those side projects. Well, see, I, I had known that there was this band in these movies called Ming T. I had no clue that Susanna Hoffs was one of them. Yeah, and I knew that they existed like within the movie, but I didn't realize that they had they predated the films. Right, which honestly makes the whole like Austin Powers thing infinitely more interesting to me. That like it spun out into this weird comedy franchise. Yeah, like imagine a joke that you tell with your friends. Imagine, yeah, if they made a movie based on Boose, like a dumb joke that we made, and now there's like four movies about Boose. Imagine if, like, Richard Cheese was, like, central to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No, it just doesn't make sense. But now I want it more than anything. Oh, of course. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's just it just doesn't track. <laughs> Richard Cheese and the Multiverse of Madness. Let's do it. <laughs> I haven't thought about Richard Cheese in fifteen years. Oh boy. Oh boy. Uh... Remember Dawn of the Dead? Those were the days. <laughs> um, but uh, were we? I lost. I love the train of thought. Um, but no, uh, BBC is one. Like, my sister and I used to quote that. Just to be like, mm-hmm. BBC One, BBC Two. I love the BBC. Yeah, it's it's, it's a great song. It's, it's got a very, like, like early Who kind of vibe to it. I really enjoy that. Yes! Song. That's it. You nailed it. Like it's, Yeah, it's early Who. That's all it is. So, but they really, they they nail that style. Mm, yeah, they do. They really They really hit it hard. And then moving on to uh, The Spy Who Shagged Me, we don't really get a Ming-T song, but they do kind of play like interstitial clips. Mm-hmm. But every time we see Ming-T in the film, they're playing the Who's My Generation. Yes, which does appear on the soundtrack. Yes, of course. It um, has to. You have to do yes, that. Yes, but, but we don't have the, um, the Ming-T interludes. It's kind of a shame. Like, why why couldn't we have gotten like a Ming T cover of My Generation? Yeah, or even get the bumpers in there because they yeah. are kind of they are kind of clever. They're pretty cool. So. But then, but then finally, coming all the way back around to the very end, we get one last Ming T song, and it's it's kind of on the nose, but it's it's still pretty fun. It's so on the nose. It's Daddy wasn't there. Ugh. Let's let's do it. Daddy, Daddy wasn't there. I know I have this on a CD I burned of like movie songs mm-hmm. and I probably at 22 was like this is very deep um but it's one of those like I'm embarrassed to listen to now because it's just like okay what are you like Quit working out your shit with your dad. You and Tim Burton both, man. <laughs> Gen X dudes and their dads. Go talk to Steven Spielberg about it. You can. He's <sighs> in the movie. I mean, <laughs> this this one, you're right. This one compared to BBC, this one's not as good, but it's still, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I just enjoy having Ming-T around. I wish we had gotten I, like a whole album with these guys. Yeah, I want a Ming-T musical. But I think with this one is that it doesn't, lyrically and tonally doesn't fit anything else like you said bbc apes the who right but this is just like a sad middle-aged man whining that his dad didn't love him and that there's no like what is it like it's the mod cats in the cradle <laughs> yeah that's true and it like, doesn't fit there's no like yeah you're right there's no like identifiable like who is this supposed to be aping kind of yeah thing and to it's it. And it doesn't have even like when you think about other lyrics at the time, it's so straightforward. And it, it lyrically, it's more singer songwriter, which we were getting into in the 70s. But we don't see any on that soundtrack. Well, that kind of fits, though, because like in Goldmember, they're moving the music kind of more into the 70s a little bit. You yes. get the, the disco vibe They're on the on the soundtrack. There's like the that weird Dr. Dre remix of the of. Uh, the Rolling Stones miss you. Yeah. Which is, you, is, is interesting, but like 
that's that's the idea they're going with, but they don't really flesh it out the the best that they could have. No, they don't flesh it out as well as International Man of Mystery. No, which really nails that tone. But they they don't ever touch on the singer songwriter sort of boom that we get in the seventies with especially a lot of the scenes coming out of LA. Right. And so to have singer songwriter lyrics on this like generically sixties, late, late sixties tune doesn't fit. And it's, it just seems so shoehorned in there. Mm-hmm. Suzanne Hoffs deserves better than this. I mean, I, I guess really when you think about it, like what's funny about, like Mike Myers singing a Harry Nilsson song or a James Taylor song. <laughs> kind of nothing. Yeah. It's just sad. Yeah, Which, it is. You it's know, really it, depressing. That's, that's, that's kind of the whole third movie in a nutshell. It's just sad. It is. And it's just like, that's a drag that um, your dad wasn't around. I guess. I'm sorry. What do you, what, yeah. Can you bring Fat Bastard back? Is he got fart? But then you look at Michael Caine and you're just like, I can't stay mad at you. I can't say no, look at that face. Say, you can't say mad on Michael Caine. <laughs> no. Such a lovely he, man. He's the best part of anything, really, you know? Truly. We don't deserve him. <laughs> From Jaws the Revenge to Austin Powers 3, Michael Caine all the way. <laughs> yeah, it's Michael Caine doing stuff that he shouldn't have to do. Exactly. <laughs> Michael Caine paying the bills is better than most actors' best days. Fair. Fair. That's that's so. a stretch, but you know what? I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> yes. So that is the Austin Powers franchise. The entire oeuvre, start to finish. Covered it all soup to nuts. I can't believe, and we did it in under 90 minutes, which is amazing. I know. We're so good at this. We've taken you through Austin Powers from start to finish. So Libby, what's going on next time on the show? All right. We are going back to the 60s again, but this time it's via the 80s as we talk about Dirty Dancing. Oh, just in time for its 35th anniversary. Yes, indeed. We're going to have the time of our lives. (laughs) I can't wait. It's going to be great. Cannot wait to put baby in a corner. (laughs) No. Nobody puts baby in a corner. So Libby, where can our listeners find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Libby Cudmore. You can find me on Instagram at record underscore Saturday. Joe, where can they find you? Uh, You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Cordial Wombat, or you can hear me yell about Christmas movies all year long on the Christmas movie on the Christmas Creeps podcast at Christmas Creeps. And you can send us anything you want on uh, the OST Party Twitter at OST Party or email us OSTPartyPod at gmail.com. That's going to do it for this week. It's been a a crazy ride through the 60s and the 90s, but uh, you know what, ladies and gentlemen, we finally did it. So for the OST Party, I'm Joseph Wade. And I'm Libby Cudmore. Buy the ticket. Take the ride. Yeah, baby. Yeah. I was going to say that. (laughs) 